This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Today we get to enjoy the company of composer Tom Chapulo. We interviewed him a few days ago at his fabulous renovated theater-turned-apartment in Long Island City. Tom Chapulo's works have been heard at major concert halls on four continents. He's received commissions from Songfest at Pepperdine, the Mirror Visions Ensemble, Joy in Singing, Five Boroughs Music Festival, and the New York Festival of Song. Mr. Chapulo recently completed his first opera, Glory Denied, premiered by the Brooklyn College Opera Theatre in 2007, with its professional premiere by the Remarkable Theatre Brigade of New York in June 2008. Tom Chapulo's song cycles, A Visit with Emily, Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House, and Of a Certain Age, are published by Oxford University Press, and his music has been recorded on the Albany, CRI, PGM, and Capstone labels. Welcome, Tom, to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're pretty excited to get to talk to you about your songs today. I have yeah, to say that. Cannot wait to hear what you have to say. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. There's, I've read some reviews that are on your website, and um, one of them calls you the, one of the greatest song composers in New York. And I wanted to ask you, what is it that draws you to writing songs? Hmm. Well, I didn't start out with that intention. Uh, back in the 80s, when I was going to graduate school, it was, it was, it was still more common for people to be writing in a more severe, dissonant idiom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a terrific teacher, David Mm Daltretici, who always said to us, composing must be fun because you're not in it for the money and you're not gonna get a lot of acclaim, so you just have to make sure it's a lot of fun when you do it. For me, it was always much more fun to write tonal, lyrical music. And in those days, you couldn't get away with it too much unless you wrote for singers, for somehow, if you wrote for singers, it was excused. I don't know, people assumed... somehow they were more appreciative. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and, and singers would learn it, and they thought, "Oh, you can't be too complicated anyway, because they can't find the notes." Oh, uh, I love it. So, <laughs> with that, of course, as I came to know later, falsehood embedded in my brain, I embarked on writing songs, and one of them turned out pretty well. And a faculty member where I was studying said, that was good. You should write more songs. That was the only nice thing he said to me in several years of graduate school. So I thought maybe I should. Isn't and it amazing how our teachers can guide us? Compliment changes your life. Yeah. And then um, people just kept asking me for them. So once they started, uh, I kept doing it. But I would love to go back and just write piano music for five or six years. Mm-hmm. And of course, I want to write opera. That's... That's my new love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you have a definition of what song is or why it's important? Mm. Well, often I think of it as that standard definition of a setting of a lyric poem for solo voice and piano. And, uh, but occasionally, of course, we want to add other instruments to that to, to give it a, a wider variety. Mm-hmm. And why is it important? Uh, I mean, I remember Bernard Rand saying, um, vocal music or, or the human voice is the only instrument that always carries with it the memory of some emotion. There's always such intense communication when you're dealing with the voice. So that sort of communication is, of course, the goal of any artist. And 
uh, I enjoy working in that idiom very much. Cool. Um, the range of text and poetry that you use is really, really wide. Uh, and I, we were both wondering how you choose, how you choose your text if you're given free range. Well, often it seems like it chooses me and I don't choose it. Uh, uh, for years... The book falls off the shelf on your head. And you yeah. Think, okay, you to turn that into song. It's very much like that. I, uh, it's like the apple. <laughs> uh, I, I can remember being stuck and having a commission and not knowing what to do and going to the Mid-Manhattan Library um, and just walking around and prowling the shelves. And sometimes a book would stick out a little bit from the shelf. <laughs> One in particular, I remember, just stuck out a little bit. And I'd been reading all this stuff. W.S. Merwin, I couldn't find anything there that I liked. All these contemporary poets. And, but this one book, Rain, by William Carpenter, completely unassuming book. And uh, I saw it. It's, it's sticking out. It's calling to me. It's calling to me. I took it, <laughs> and uh, I kept it for overdue, I don't know how many months. <laughs> and I wound up basing five, for five pieces on it, and it really consumed me for years. And there have been several other instances like that. Right now, I'm consumed by Liselle Mueller, whom mm -hmm. I had never heard of. But mm -hmm. I, No, I don't know who that is either. Oh, you're stunning. Uh, All right. Just uh, Contemporary American poet? Contemporary American who lives in Chicago now. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she's in her 80s. And, uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize, but I had never heard of her. But... Somehow I was led to her, and now that's pretty much all I want to do is, if she will let me, mm -hmm. uh, to continue to set her poems to music. Um, Does something I, in poetry jump out and grab your imagination? Is, do, you, do you find that there's certain, certain images or, ch or choices of words that poets use that really draw you in? Or well, there, there, yeah, there are often things that draw me out like, or, or, or knock me out in the sense that I can't use it. I can tell immediately I can't use it. Oh, uh, what, 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 thing, what things can't you use? Well, um, you know, a song goes by so quickly. Yeah. You can't go yeah. back and look at it again. Yeah. And you yeah. can go back and say, oh yeah, now I understand. Mm -hmm. But if you're not experiencing it at that moment, mm -hmm. it's, it's lost part of its effect. So um, there's a whole bunch of very complicated poets. Whitman, I love Whitman. But it's just, I don't understand why people keep doing, oh, this is a terrible thing to say, but why do people... We love it, we love it, say it! <laughs> why do people keep setting out of the cradle, endlessly rocking? It's just, you know, it goes on forever, it's so complicated, it's you have difficult. to know so much illusion to get it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, things like Gerard Manley Hopkins, where the, the lines themselves have such rhythm mm -hmm. that by setting it to music, you've destroyed... The rhythm that's already there. It's already complete unto itself. It doesn't. It is. Uh, it is complete, but it's so idiosyncratic in, in what it has that you're almost destroying it. Mm. Uh, right now, I, I only want to set contemporary American poetry. I don't want to go back and look at things that are a hundred years old. Mm -hmm. I've done it, you know, when I've been asked to do it. But the form of song—it's so rarefied already. Standing up, singing in German, singing in, in French. Beautiful, it's stunning, but it's already it's so elevated that we're going to lose the audience if we don't find something that speaks immediately to our time and in our voice. I love that you just said that. 
So. Yeah, yeah. My feeling is that it's also very culture specific. So a German yeah. song doesn't feel nearly as elevated if you're listening to it in Germany with a German audience. Yeah. Or mm -hmm. French song in France with a French audience yeah. because it speaks much more to their, their, if not their own experience, the experience of their grandparents or whoever, you know. Yeah. But right. here mm -hmm. in America or in Canada or sure. wherever, it, you can more easily reflect our, our experience as people mm -hmm. with current poetry and current music. And I think it probably draws a, a, at least a little bit wider audience of, of the people that are involved in the, in the poetry community, at least I would expect. Mm -hmm. you, know, right. you would find. And it makes it a, a richer emotional experience for American audiences. I think mm -hmm. that's, yes. mm -hmm. that's indisputable. Absolutely. We asked Tom to introduce the first work that we'll hear today. House is a song taken from his cycle, Insomnia. Um, Insomnia, the original idea for it came from my friend Mark Shapiro, who's a, a wonderful conductor. He conducts the Cantori New York group. And he gave me this book, and he thought about an idea of uh, a whole piece, a cantata based on that theme. And uh, we talked about it, but over time, we just, we just never got around to it. Well, not about a, a year ago, Rosemary Hyler Ritter called me from Songfest, and she wanted to commission a piece. And I thought, oh, I have this great idea. It just came to me, insomnia. <laughs> um, and then I suggested it. And then, of course, after Rosemary said yes, I realized, oh, my goodness. Where did I get that idea from? I got it from Mark. <laughs> so then I thought, well, maybe this will work out fine, because I can have a chamber version, and then I can have a chorus version. And there are some pieces that exist like that and can yeah. be done by, by either. Um, so that was so the so the piece is co-commissioned by Cantori New York, and also by by Songfest at Pepperdine, um, and it's ten varied movements about sleep or not sleeping, and the hard thing about the whole piece was to get variety because how many mm -hmm. movements of oh I hear the water dripping can you have? <laughs> so but uh, I believe the movement you're going to play is the water dripping movement. Oh well. <laughs> With, well, now we're curious. So I'm glad we get to hear it. <laughs> uh, with words by Dana Joya, who was head of the NEA for a while, a wonderful poet, and uh, National Endowment of the Arts. That's right. And uh, the the marvelous performers are Michael Anthony McGee, baritone, and Lisa Stepanova, pianist. Bass baritone Michael Anthony McGee earned his bachelor's and master's of music from the Manhattan School of Music. He is the Northwest Regional winner of the Metropolitan Opera National Council Auditions. He's studied at the Young Artist Programs at Seattle, San Francisco, and at Santa Fe, and performances have included the title role of Verdi's Falstaff and Snug in Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, importantly, for our purposes, he has sung solo recitals at Carnegie's Weill Recital Hall and at Merkin Concert Hall in New York. Lisa Stepanova is primarily a solo pianist, uh, and she's recently started collaborating with singers through programs like Songfest and the Joy in Singing Foundation. A native of Belarus, she began her performance career at age 11, and after living for several years in Germany, she settled in New York City in the fall of 2005. She's appeared at Alice Tully, Steinway, Merkin, and Carnegie's Wild Recital Halls. She's been a recipient of many important awards and competitions. She's performed with Claudio Ovato and Nicholas McGeegan and is currently a DMA fellow at the Juilliard School. House.
Next, we're going to hear two songs from America 1968. Can you help us get into that world? Well, it's, uh, it was quite a time. Uh, for a long time, I wanted to write music about that year, 1968, which was uh, one of the most turbulent years in American history. I was young enough still not to understand what was going on, but old enough for it to have quite an impression on me. And that particular year was marked by two assassinations, one of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and one of Robert Kennedy. It was marked also by riots at the Democratic National Convention. Mm. And uh, it may be hard to think of how recent this was, actually, but the Mexico City Olympics, where uh, two black athletes on the medal stand raised their fists in the Black Power salute. Mm. Um, it was just a tremendous time, a time of chaos and opportunity, a time marked by many, many heroes, quiet heroes, mm -hmm. and uh, also a time when fathers and sons routinely fought, even worse than they do now, and I think everyone who went through that mm -hmm. time was marked by it. For a long time, I've been very much influenced by the poetry of Robert Hayden, who's just a sensational poet, was the first African-American poet to be named Poet Laureate of the United States. Although in those days they were called the consultant to the Library of Congress. Mm. Um, so I, I found a whole bunch of his poems and assembled this group, which I think talks about the spirit of the time, though they were all very different in, in their mood and exactly how they go about it. That's uh, Andy Garland and Donna Lowy told me that they were uh, planning to to do a, a concert that was going to be sponsored by Carnegie Hall and the Marilyn Horn Foundation. And I had been wanting, I had told them, I want to write a piece for you. I hear you guys. I see these poems. I see you guys doing this. And they were agreeable. They wanted to do it. So Very that's cool. how it happened. I know that Andy has spoken so highly of your work and just adores this set. Well, they bring it to life in a way that's uh, very moving to me. It's... 
I confess when I sit in the audience sometimes and I hear them do it, I'm I'm almost moved to tears. Hmm. It's just uh, it's, it's really remarkable to have somebody bring my work to life like that. This is the fourth and fifth movement. Can you talk just for a second about them? The first one you'll hear is called The Whipping. It's uh, got a killer piano part, and Donna Lowy just uh, plays it so well. I mean, who hasn't really seen, uh, unfortunately, someone, a, a child being slapped around by a parent or by an older person and wondered how to react to it and what to do? And this is a particularly horrific incident, I think, that is, Mr. Hayden describes so eloquently in these words. And then the one after that, Those Winter Sundays, is uh, one of Hayden's most popular poems. And uh, one finds it very often in different anthologies. And it talks a lot about uh, being a young man and not understanding sacrifices maybe that someone older makes and just not understanding them. The last song in this set is entitled Frederick Douglass. And in fact, we have heard this on an earlier podcast. And if you are interested in hearing this spectacular rendition of phenomenal work, you are invited to go and check into the archives of Sparks and Wiry Cries. I've had the pleasure of knowing both Andrew Garland and Donna Lowy uh, during my master's at Cincinnati. Donna is on faculty there as a coach, and Andy was a fellow master's student. Andy's won numerous prizes and competitions. He performs all over the U.S. singing both opera and concert. He has a particular flair for concert repertoire and loves to perform contemporary music. He's most recently released on the Other Shore, a disc of folk song settings by Stephen Mark Cohn, and in 2009 also released a disc of songs by Lee Hoiby entitled A Pocket of Time on the Naxos label. Donna Lowy, aside from being a wonderful teacher, performs throughout the U.S. as a recitalist and operatic coach. She has been presented at the Maryland Horn Foundation, the Cleveland Art Song Festival, the Mozart Society of Carmel in California, and formed great collaborations with tenor Dan Weeks and, of course, Andy Garland. The old woman across the way is whipping the boy again and shouting to the neighborhood her goodness and his wrongs. Of years, 
Come 
The last selection we're going to hear uh, has just a little bit of humor involved. Tenor Paul Sperry singing a piece. I think I believe it's you at the piano. Is that right? Yes. Uh, singing Reasons Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. Uh, yes, it, it's uh, from a cycle, the same name, and uh, six songs on poems of Billy Collins. And this last one is sort of a, a tribute to New York City life. <laughs> um, it's kind of odd because uh, I, I wrote this, this song, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, and I showed it to a baritone, uh, a rather a well-known baritone, whom I respect very much. And uh, as he looked at it, and we played through it, he's, he turned to me before we even finished it, and he said, "You're not. You don't really want me to do this, do you?" This, no. I don't know. He was horrified. He just said, "You don't. You don't really. You don't really want me to do this." Well, and I, no, I was just not think it was funny. Like, what? I don't know. He well. Maybe it isn't. Um, he, I think it's hilarious. So, but I, of course, said, oh, no, no, I was only kidding. I don't, I don't really want oh, you. No. no, no. So I put it away. I just put it away, and I never dared to show it to anybody again for, no. for five years, I think. Oh, no. What and then I showed it to Paul. Who, and he loved it. I'm he sure loved I'm it. He sure started laughing. And now it's, uh, of all the things, it's the thing that's done most of mine, I guess. So... The message is, if you believe in something, don't let one person talk you out of it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Paul Sperry is a really special um, performer. He has been he has premiered probably more American song than anybody else mm -hmm. that I know of. He is somebody who just has spent his entire life dedicated to this genre. And he's a very important performer yes. of this music. Undoubtedly. And the extent to which he's encouraged... Composers, not even the commissions are sensational. What he mm -hmm. did, he commissioned many, many wonderful pieces. But just uh, the openness to new things and encouraging people, particularly young composers. Mm -hmm. For for a long time, he found composers who really needed it, who needed a hand up, and needed mm -hmm. some way to help them get mm -hmm. through. There's a lot of composers who owe him. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of there's a lot of performers who owe him too. His Joint Singing Foundation, which he's the head of, encourages singers and pianists. Uh, it commissions new music, of course. It's really, it was actually, I think, maybe one of the first gigs I did here in New York City. So this song in particular, I, I appreciate it so much for, well, the dog barking, the quotations of other composers. Uh, what, what brought, is this, is this how you see New York City as a, a multimedia kind of <laughs> barrage of, of different influences all in one song? I wish I could say I was smart enough to have thought that way. Um... No, I just, I got started. Uh, once the, the, the speaker talks about a Beethoven symphony, I thought, why not? I'll put in a Beethoven symphony. And then I just, how many, how many Beethoven type things can I put in? And then, and then how can I keep them in the right key? That was a fun question. <laughs> key. So, uh, yeah, it just sort of took off. It became compulsive. Um, Excellent. Well, let's have a listen to the hilarity. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking It is barking the same high-rhythmic bark That he barks every time they leave the house They must switch him on on their way
This last recording was from Paul Sperry's disc entitled New American Song Cycles. It was released on Albany Records. Albany has been a huge supporter of contemporary music and in particular contemporary song and opera. You can find them on the web at www.albanyrecords.com. What a great honor it was to speak with Tom Trapullo. Thank you, Tom, for your time and honesty and hospitality. And as always, many, many thanks to our illustrious producer, Matthew Principe. Many of our performers have websites or web presence. And for more information, you can go to either sparksandwirycries.com, marthaguth.com, or ericaswitzer.com. You've been listening to Sparks and Wiry Cries. We're your hosts, Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. I've been thinking a lot about the growth of a composer, his style, his, his, his um, compositional tools, and I wonder what you have seen in your life thus far as a composer. What were your early struggles? Where are you at now? What have you got better at? Oh, oh, you want a confession? No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> We want to know about your triumphs. Uh, well, it's all, um, what are, I, there are so many difficult things. I think, um, one thing I'm proud of now is uh, that I search out more things, more and more and more things. And I try and, if I, I come up with a chord, I can make that chord better. Mm -hmm. um, the great composer Stephen Albert said, I've come to think that so much of what we do is really an accretion of details. And 
now I go back and when I was young, oh, it's done, it's done. But now uh, I rewrite these things so many more times. And now if I find a moment I like, and I guess I learned this from Schumann too, I will go back and find a way to maximize that moment. How can, what can I add to that chord? It may be simple as adding an octave, maybe uh, simple as adding some dirty little note in a harmony. <laughs> um, it could be changing the rhythm, taking it from somewhere else, but this is what I want. This is the effect that I want. Mm-hmm. What, how many different tools can I bring to bear to make this effect? Mm-hmm. That's why, um, when, you know, if I meet young composers, I always tell them, you have to learn how to edit your work. You have to mm-hmm. learn how to revise and edit. Because if you are unsure where you are going, uh, it, will, it will show up in the editing of it. You know, if you can't decide what is this or what is that, what is the dynamic here, I'm not sure. If you don't know, then you've made a mistake in 